Welcome back to Kentucky History and Haunts. I'm your host, Jesse Bartholomew. Before I get into today's episode, I wanted to quickly plug my new show. It's called the Pine Overcoat Podcast. It's available on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search Pine Overcoat and it should come right up. So I was feeling a little limited by just talking about Kentucky-related topics. Of course, Kentucky is amazing and very interesting, but I have such a wide variety of interests. I wanted to create something where I could talk about all those other things. So this show will be anything from medical history to war history, um, science, true crime, the occult, sort of a little bit of everything. So I would imagine that if you're enjoying Kentucky History and Haunts, you will also like the Pine Overcoat podcast. So head on over to wherever you listen to podcasts, which you probably already have open, and just go ahead and subscribe to the new show. And with that being said, um, today's topic is one that's been requested by several people now, so I figured I better get into it. So, this is the story of Anne Gottlieb's disappearance. Anne Gottlieb was born on May 5th, 1971, to Anatoly and Ludmilla Gottlieb. Her family... Russian-Jewish immigrants moved to Louisville, Kentucky in 1980. On June 1, 1983, when Anne was 12 years old and had been in the States for just three years, she took a bus to the Jewish Community Center to play tennis with her friend Rachel Podgursky. Anne had red hair, grayish eyes, freckles, pierced ears, and she spoke both English and Russian. She was absolutely adorable. You can look up pictures of her on the internet. She had such a sweet face. That day, June 1st, she was wearing a red and white shirt, blue shorts with white stripes, beige sneakers, and gold earrings with purple stones. Anne played tennis with Rachel, and then Rachel's mom took her back to her home on Gerald Court. If you're not familiar with Louisville. Gerald Court is on the other side of Bardstown Road from the Bashford Manor Shopping Center, which is where the Bashford Manor Mall used to be until it closed in 2003. So Anne was dropped off at her house and then she rode her bike to another friend's house and that was Tanya Okmiansky. They watched TV at Tanya's house for a while until Anne was called home for dinner. So Tanya escorted Anne part of the way home on their bikes right up until they reached the Bashford Manor Mall. Then they said goodbye. This was between 5.30 and 6 p.m. And that was the last confirmed sighting of Anne Gottlieb. At first, investigators felt like Anne may have run away on purpose. There was speculation that she was having a hard time adjusting to life in a new place that was so new and different from what she was used to. And she wasn't making a lot of friends. A teacher told police that Anne had been upset recently because she'd had a birthday party and almost all of the kids she invited didn't show up. Besides these stories of Anne having trouble adjusting, Investigators learned that she'd recently been reading a book about a boy who was abducted when riding his bike, and the only evidence left behind was the boy's bike propped up against a wall. 
The only evidence left behind of Anne was also her bike, which was found outside Bagan's at the mall. I bet some of you remember Bagan's. That was before my time, but I've heard my parents talk about it. Anyway, Anne's family stood with then-County Judge Executive Mitch McConnell and begged for help. They insisted she wouldn't have run away from home. If she'd left on her own, they were sure she'd have called by now to let them know she was okay at least. And they were about to take a family vacation to Michigan and to Canada, and she was so looking forward to it that she wrote about her upcoming trip for the school paper. Kids typically don't run away when they're really looking forward to something. And she didn't take anything with her. No money, no toys, stuffed animals, clothing. None of her possessions other than the clothing she had on were missing. Pretty quickly, investigators realized it just wouldn't be possible for a little kid to take off like that and survive and go on undetected, covering her tracks and evading the authorities. It was just so unlikely. Reward posters were hung all over the state. Hundreds of tips were called in. None of them amounted to anything. The FBI was brought in to lead the investigation. Police used bloodhounds to search for traces of Anne three days after she was first reported missing. Coincidentally, the dogs led them to an apartment across the street from Bashford Manor, an apartment occupied by Tanya Okmiansky's grandmother. Her family was cleared, but it was an interesting coincidence. The grandmother said that the dog must have smelled the food she was cooking, and the police were like, yeah, that must have been it. So that was the end of that, and it sounds like they cleared Anne's own family as suspects pretty quickly as well. For a little while, they thought maybe she was kidnapped by Soviet agents trying to get her family to go back to their home country, but that possibility was ruled out too. Her family was adamant there was no reason the Soviets would care about getting the family back. So Anne didn't run away. Her family was ruled out. Her friends' families were ruled out. Soviet spies were ruled out, and two local sex offenders were also questioned and ruled out. So, who took Anne Gottlieb? Decades passed. The case went ice cold. Until 1990. Let's talk about Michael Lee Lockhart. Lockhart was born on September 30th, 1960 in Walbridge, Ohio. That would have made him 23 at the time of Anne's disappearance. Lockhart had had a stolen Corvette parked at a motel, and when an officer tried to arrest him for it, and for suspicion of other crimes, Lockhart murdered the cop. After that, there was a high-speed chase. Finally, he was apprehended, and the police found evidence of several other crimes in the stolen vehicle. He was given the death penalty in three states, Texas, Florida, and Indiana. And while he was spilling information about all his crimes, he said that he took Ann Gottlieb and buried her body at Fort Knox, where he was stationed in 1983. When investigators checked the location he instructed them to go to, they found nothing. 
It sounds to me like it was probably one of those cases where the guy was already caught and now he was trying to go down in history as a more prolific serial killer. You know, the fame, the notoriety. They were able to confirm that he committed at least three murders, the ones in those states I just mentioned. Those murders took place between 1987 and 1988. Remember, Anne was murdered in 83. Lockhart was executed in Texas in 1997, and Ann Gottlieb's case remained cold. More decades passed until 2008, when there was another break in the case. This time, investigators had an announcement to make. Ann Gottlieb was murdered, and Gregory Lewis Oakley Jr. was her killer. Oakley had a sordid past. This isn't his only crime, but just a few months after Anne went missing, Oakley stabbed and attempted to rape a 13-year-old girl in her home. A girl with red hair, similar to Anne's. A girl who was the daughter of a police officer. The girl survived, and Oakley was arrested in January of 1984. During the interrogation, the investigators brought up Anne Gottlieb, and they decided based on his reaction to that to give him a polygraph test, a test that he failed. So they did some more digging, and they found that Oakley Jr. used the ATM at the Bashford Manor Mall just a few hours before Anne went missing. He told police that right after he stopped at that ATM, he left town on a business trip. In June of 1984, Oakley was charged with burglary and attempted rape of the police officer's daughter. He served 30 years in the LaGrange prison, but he was paroled early for medical reasons. So he moved to Alabama, where he was originally from, and where he passed away of lung cancer in 2002. The reason it took until 2008 for investigators to make any sort of announcement was because, well, that's when they got their break. A former inmate of Oakley's told police that Oakley had admitted to murdering Anne by injecting drugs into her, a painkiller called Talwin, which is pretty heavy duty from what I understand. And Oakley was a vet at the time, so he would have access to drugs like that. So they hooked this inmate up to a polygraph and had him tell the story over again, and he passed the test. And then a former girlfriend of Oakley's confirmed what the inmate told them. She also told investigators that on the night of Anne's disappearance, Oakley showed up at her apartment at 11 p.m. and asked her to wash some clothes for him. This contradicts the story he gave that he left town for a business trip right after stopping at the Bashford Manor ATM. His former girlfriend also told reporters this, quote, Greg did talk about the Gottlieb case. He said that if they didn't find her shortly, that she is gone. They would never find her. And even though they had these witnesses, what they didn't have, and still don't have to this day, is a body. But investigators did say that if he were alive in 2008, they would have arrested him for Anne's murder. Because of Anne's case, Ernie Allen, the former public safety director of Louisville, 
founded the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. This is a program that helped launch tools like the Amber Alert and sex offender registries. So a little bit of good came from this. I hate to say that, but you know, at least at least that was something good that came from it. And of course, the the other thing that we have to think about is um you know, in in regards to the body, if what the former girlfriend is saying is true and he showed up at her house at 11 p.m. that night, that would mean they had he had maybe 5 hours in between the last sighting of Anne and the time he showed up at the girlfriend's house. So if you think of it that way, she she could have been buried anywhere within a two and a half mile radius of the Bashford Manor Mall. That's that's a lot of, of ground to have possibly covered. So no evidence, no body, a deceased suspect, and technically an open investigation. This is the story without an ending of Anne Gottlieb. Thanks for listening to another episode of Kentucky History and Haunts. You know, the silver lining with this case is that it it sounds like Oakley probably was her killer, and if he was, at least we know that he spent the majority of his last years in prison. Um, The downside of that is it wasn't for Anne's murder, and the family still really doesn't have any closure. And I always really hate that. It's That's tough. So yeah, thank you guys for listening. And if you haven't already, please leave a quick review on Apple Podcasts. That does help me a lot. And uh, just a reminder, I do have a website. It's kyhistoryhaunts.com. There are additional photographs and my sources uh, for each episode. You can find those there. Thank you all for listening. And until next time.